everybody, it's Richard Harris and Scott Lease. Well, actually, Scott's not with us today. He had a little bit of a financial emergency. Don't worry, he'll be just fine. Um, another exciting edition of the Surf and Sales Podcast brought to you by Lead 411, Find Them, uh, Perception Predict, Gong, and of course, our good friends over at Vidyard, who are our recent sponsors. So thank you to them for, for supporting us and check them out if you don't know them, particularly find them in Perception Predict, whereas we move into the AI space and really understand what it takes to um, find the right salesperson and how important that is. Both those guys have a very different and unique approach to helping you support that. And in some cases, it's prior to the job search. In some cases, it's with the team you have. How accurate are they going to be? Without any further ado, I want to introduce our special guest um, who we've had to reschedule a couple of times. So we're not doing that today. Uh, it is Thibaut Cyrus. Yes, it sounds like Miley Cyrus's cousin, but unfortunately, um, unless he knows, someone knows otherwise, he's not part of the Cyrus family. Um, and also Billy Ray, like, you know, Billy Ray is just as good. He came along before she did. And, and uh, Thibaut is not, uh, you know, sporting the mullet. Tebow, do you know what a mullet is, by the way? These amazing haircuts from the 80s, right? Exactly. So, oh, it still exists. Don't you worry. Don't you worry about that. So Tebow, um, Tebow is, is uh, the founder um, and a really smart sales guy of Sales Labs. Um, and I'll let him explain what that is. But, uh, but Tebow, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Richard. Really happy to, uh, to be there. Yeah, so... so you're normally based in Berlin, Germany, um, but where are you now? I'm right now in uh, Irapuato, which is a town in the center of Mexico. Okay. And what, what's got you in Mexico? So my fiance is actually from Mexico. Okay. And also the co-host of the B2B sales podcast that we host together. Yep. And uh, so we said, uh, you know, in Germany right now, uh, there's lockdowns everywhere and it's, Berlin is, is pretty cool, but not really in winter when you can't do anything. So we said, why not go to Mexico, work from there. We have the family there, some space. Because Mexico is open and there's no uh, quarantine. So we just thought it would be a great uh, great thing to do. And that's why we're here. That's awesome. That's really, really great. So tell people a little bit about Sales Labs, not from the sense of pitching. We know you're not pitching, but it does help folks understand where your perspective comes from. And by all means, if someone does need their support, check them out. But give people some perspective of where you're coming from. So basically, Sales Labs is a company I created two years ago, um, and it's the results of actually two years figuring things out uh, in sales. So I've been in sales for uh, since I'm 15, basically selling airplane cleaning services. But Sales Labs, uh, I really focus on training and coaching uh, tech sales people to actually generate more opportunities. And so the idea is really a focus on sales development and starting conversations, especially if your customers are on LinkedIn. So it's really what I do. I, I do that through uh, you know different programs. But that's really, um, you know, the, the way I do that. And my main focus is really around sales development. And uh, it's actually something I came up with uh, stumbling on your profile last October, I remember. I didn't have a brand or anything. And then I was like, okay, this guy is like producing so much great content. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to do the same. So I produced, uh, you know, I produced a ton of free content, I have a podcast, some webinars and things like that. And really my idea is just to make sure I help people um, you know, yeah, sell on LinkedIn because a lot of people are complaining about uh, these connection requests where you pitch and connect. And for me, I like to be on the other end of the spectrum where I always talk about solutions and practical advice. And that's really what I, I try to uh, to help people with. 
That's great. I want, I'm going to just quickly walk through your history because I think you have a really unique background from a sales perspective. Um, you know, so I, I'm going to start with sort of 2013 and 14, which means you're really a whole lot younger than me um, and certainly more handsome with better hair. Uh, but you were the marketing campaign manager and QA analyst at Password Box, uh, which got acquired by Intel Password Box is, of course, one of those places where you can store all your passwords. Um, and you were there, I would say, earlier in the generation of that field, um, which I, but, but your roles there are pretty interesting. You then moved into a VP of business development. You then became a senior sales manager. These are different companies. Um, you know, at a company called Applause, you were senior sales manager, manager of the France sales team, did some partner growth. And so you've really got this great background all the way from product engineering and QA to market testing, like how do we make sure that this product works at Password Box and then into sales. So are you an engineer by design? Are you a marketer by design? Like, you know, how did you get into that role? And then what made you go into sales? So um, it's, it's really, it's really nice that you, you go back to that because fun people don't ask me about that. So the thing is Password Box was a startup in, Mo in Montreal. So I lived in Montreal for six years and I did my studies in a school called HEC Montreal. And it's like a bachelor in marketing, I, I guess, something like that. Uh, I'm, so I, as you can see, I kind of forgot all about my education, but uh, I was like partner in this kind of uh, company called Body Pilots, which where I was VP of business development which clearly, actually I thought business development sounded uh, cooler than sales. So that's why I picked this, but I had no clue about sales. And so I was in this company and my partners were working at Password Box and I was finishing my studies and I was looking for a job. And so they say, hey, we need a QA manager, which means like someone who's just gonna find bugs. And I say, okay, yeah, why not? So I joined the company uh, and actually I joined as a customer uh, service agent. And after one month, they were like, oh, you're not that good at customer service. So we're going to put you in QA. And then what I love with QA is that I figured out that if I develop script to do QA and test case, I could actually spend my time paid by the company working on my other side gig while the QA was being done. And the beautiful thing with QA is no matter what you do, if you release an app, there's going to be bugs. And often, it's, you know, you can't just go and catch all the bugs. So there's no really real way to find out if you're doing something or not when you're doing QA. So I was just basically doing nothing there. And then I passed that, like uh, I had the VP marketing and then I just left, finished working uh, for six months for Buddy Pilots until it failed. And then I moved to um, uh, Berlin to actually start my career in tech sales, let's say. That's awesome. What attracted you to sales? Why, why go to sales? So um, the thing is, I don't, I don't, it's kind of strange, but like a lot of people don't really know what to do. And then they end up in sales. For me, I always wanted, knew I wanted to be in sales. The first job I wanted to do was actually to be an ophthalmologist. And uh, the reason for that is because I knew one, a guy who was an ophthalmologist and he was a really extrovert person. And basically I wanted to be like him. And I thought your job defined you. And then I was like, okay, I want to do that. And then my parents said, Thibaut, uh, you're not that good at school. You're actually, uh, being a doctor is a lot of long studies. And I think you would be much better at uh, doing business. And so I was like, yeah, why not? And I remember seeing a documentary about a CEO of a great uh, group who's now in jail, I guess, of, a, of a Renault, you know, Carlos Ghosn, when I was 15. And I was like, okay, I want to do business. And then I realized that the best way, to, a good way to do business is to generate revenue. And then I was, okay, maybe I can do that with sales. <laughs> Who was the CEO? You got to tell us. Uh, Carlos Ghosn, the guy Who? from 
Carlos Ghosn, the CEO of Renault. For who? Um, Renault, you know the car manufacturer in France? Renault? Oh, I don't oh know Renault? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Carlos Ghosn. Yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, just out of curiosity, you know, you're, you're from Berlin, you've lived in Montreal, you um, are now living in Mexico. How many languages do you speak? So I speak, I would say, three and a half, we could say. So French is my mother tongue because I was actually born in Geneva, but my parents are French from the south of France. So French was my mother tongue. I speak English. I speak uh, German, I would say, good level. And uh, now I'm kind of forced to learn how to speak Spanish with my family uh, in-law. So go ahead. How do you, how do you, what do you think about knowing so many different languages has helped you in business? Aside from just the communication factor, like I can have multiple conversations with different people, but is there something deeper than that, that, that people may not understand or know? I really love this question because uh, it's something I'm thinking about a lot. Um, I just think it's, it's, Kind of, it brings you like different perspective and different dimensions in in, uh, in your life. So it's it just like if you see a two dimension thing, then you add another language, you'll see a third dimension. And so what's interesting is culturally, um, you, you understand a lot more things. Just for example, I have friends who are only speaking French; um, they don't speak English. And I'm thinking about all the knowledge you have in English uh, that you don't have in other languages. And so, for example, I'm uh, watching a, a series on Netflix called uh, Last Chance You, which is like... Yeah, I uh, love that. That's one of my favorite shows. And it's just, I love it because it shows like the reality of, of young, uh, young people in, uh, in the Southwest, in Mississippi. And, uh, and I can understand that because I've been, you know, I know a lot of people from the US. I've been living in Canada for a while. But if you go and, and you're just speaking French and maybe you take the French translation, which must be weird, you won't really understand what it is, what's the reality of that. And you know how how life is over there. So I think I think these multiple languages gets you to uh, first understand cultures, and then you kind of have this feeling where you don't feel anywhere at home, but you feel everywhere at home. Right now, I'm in like in a really let's say wild neighborhood of Irapuato, which was I think the sixth most dangerous town in the world last year, and it's like there's dogs everywhere. It's kind of very strange, but I feel home. It's it's really strange, and so. Um, That, that's what it brings is a lot of nice understanding of different cultures and this feeling that you kind of home everywhere. So it's pretty nice. Yeah. So it certainly gives you a comfort level. Um, just out of curiosity, ever, ever been a part of a conversation where they spoke in a different language and they didn't know you were listening and you were able to understand? Yeah, very often. So um, what happens in Berlin, in the Uban, in the metro, a lot of people are either French or Spanish. Uh, and they speak sometimes and then, you know, they think no, no one around them speak like uh, everyone speaks German, which is very dangerous because most people don't speak, really speak German in, in Berlin. And so you hear what they say, but very commonly that happens to us with my fiance where uh, we, we speak in general three or four languages. And so sometimes we speak, some, we speak in French and when I'm really annoyed, I will speak in French. And sometimes I say, oh yeah, the person around me was just said something in French. So they understood everything I was saying. Has that ever happened? I, I think I'm asking More interestingly, has it ever happened in a business meeting? I'm a business meeting. Um, I had a lot of people where, you know, we both, we both knew we were French, but we spoke English. And then, uh, you know, like, it's just easier in English often. For some people, it's not. But uh, if you're into this kind of international um, setup, you will actually speak a lot of English. It's going to be much better in general. Got so it. not too much. Got it. What's it? 
where are most of your customers these days? Are they in the States? Are they in Europe? Where are most of your customers? So they're mostly in Europe right now. I'm, I'm trying to uh, also work with the US. Um, but the thing is, what I found is um, in business, you tend to attract people who are similar, uh, who, who kind of look like you or think like you. And what I found is uh, I'm typically an example of a guy uh, who's international. So I find a lot of people are actually in, uh, have in France, Germany, in UK, in Ireland, Spain, but often people who came from different backgrounds and walks of life. So yeah, that's, that's mostly in Europe, working with, with the US, but mostly in Europe, yeah. What, do you, what, are some, what are two or three things that Americans should know when we're selling into Europe? And I, and I can also understand that you know, Germany will be different than France. Um, but I, I am curious because I think, I think people see us as sort of the American cowboy coming in, being aggressive. I don't know. You can confirm or deny that. Um, so what should we know about working with people? Let's say Germany, just to start. So Germany, um, is a very tough one because Germany is, uh, is like, uh, most of the, the, the wealth or the, the money comes from what we call the Mittelstand, which is the equivalent of, uh, it's small businesses that are family owned and they, they are basically not so much on internet. And they don't really speak anything else in German. And even if you speak German, if you don't have the cultural background, it's going to be very tough to actually uh, connect, build rapport and do anything there. So, um, so what I would say is like, unfortunately in Germany, if you want to go and really expand, you need to hire someone who's, who's German. And that's why if you speak German and, uh, and you're in sales, you're really in high demand. So you're going to get like really highly paid. Uh, but overall, in Europe, what you have to kind of uh, um, understand is that there are areas that are more or less similar. You have the Latin areas like France, Spain, Italy, Portugal, where there's going to be one style which is going to be, um, we're going to spend way more time building rapport than getting down to business. That's really what you're going to do. What does that mean? So if, so let's say I'm on a first call with, with someone, and you can define the country in terms of Europe. What should I expect to build rapport? Is that a time thing? Is it like, hey, if your first meeting's 30 minutes, don't even try to talk about the product. And what kind of things could we talk about better to, again, try to meet the customer in their mind, right? Rather than force them into ours. So I would say what you need to do is to do neat selling. That's, that's the thing you need to do is like to build rapport where people really appreciate because often we think it's about small talk and talking about the family and whatever. And that can be done. But what people really appreciate is whenever you are uh, asking the right, the right things and you're starting your call, like uh, you ask the, the, the right to, let me say, like get the right to ask questions, as you said. Right to ask questions, yeah. yeah. That's, really, that's really what you need to do is like, you can go down to business, but if you're really honest about what you want to do and why you're in there, you're going to be able to build this rapport. I've, I've experienced that in France a lot where I used the, I got trained on sender training. I was using the upfront contract and people really loved it. They were like, oh, that's strange, but they really appreciate that because um, they appreciate the fact that you're direct down to business. And so what you need to do is to make sure you really work. You, so you either like talk about your family and whatever, and this kind of, of cultural things, which I'm not a huge fan because it then takes a lot of time to build rapport. Or you go and you really use these tactics like an upfront contract uh, to actually go and explain exactly what you want to do. And then people will, will open up very much because they, um, they know what you want. And, and I found that being, having authenticity and showing that you're clear on what are your intentions works in every kind of uh, languages and cultures. 
which is interesting because that's no different than what we do in the U.S. And that's certainly no different than what I teach in the U.S. Um, in, in terms of earning the right to ask questions, which questions to ask and when to do it. But it's actually very refreshing to hear that Europe is not that different um, at, at, a, at, at a conversational level, right? When, as a European, do you think that when your when your seller when your when your salesperson is American and you're you're European, is there sort of this? Oh no, here comes an American, or like what's the mentality when people from America sell into Europe? Do you think? And granted, we're two guys just trying to you know talk it through, so we're, neither one of us are the you know don't take it all for for what it is, but it is curious to talk about. So I would say it really depends on, on the crowd. Um, if you, if you, I, I would say if you're international, you speak good English, uh, then people will be neutral. It always depends. Like if, if you're, if we both are in business, it's because most salespeople are actually doing things wrong and they are pitching like crazy and, uh, and, and they are just like, they don't really understand exactly what they need to do to, uh, to kind of build this report. So if you go and people are going to start pitching and talking about the, the features and all of these without asking questions, um, we will be okay. The cowboys are trying to sell us something. And then all the cliche will kind of come up. But um, I think it depends. For me, whenever someone from the US is trying to sell me something, I really appreciate it because uh, often they are trained really well. Um, and, you know, they ask good questions and you and you have like, you, you get this impression that you're not being sold something, but you're you're really thinking, reflecting, and you're being consulted, like uh, the person is being consulted with you. So I, I think it really depends. But if you have someone who's French and doesn't speak good English, they will definitely have a hard time building a new rapport with you. And, uh, and then they will be like, oh, okay, the Cowboys are here. And for me, that's something I exp I've experienced personally when I was working at uh, my previous company. Uh, the CEO came with me and he was in, in Europe. He said, okay, book, book some meetings with, uh, with the customers. We went to customers and then he pulled out his slide and then he was just like talking forever about the grand vision and how amazing it was. And, you know, you can work in the Silicon Valley when you want to raise money. But in France, in Paris, where French people are just like French, they, they won't be impressed at all. So that's, uh, that's the thing there. So do you think that it, again, and, and the, you know, these are cultural biases that I have. So maybe maybe the cultural bias is on, on me um, as well as, as other salespeople. I don't know. Do folks in Europe take longer to make decisions? than folks in America when it comes to purchasing software or services, or no, not really Richard, if you've done the right thing and you've done an upfront contract and you've been very direct or, or, you know, again, I don't know enough about the culture of purchasing. I know it's very different, right? Like I know, you know, anytime I go sell into another country, I, I certainly Google, you know, selling to, you know, Germans or selling to the Japanese or so, because somebody has written something. Right. Somebody has more knowledge about it than I do. So I at least want to understand things. Um, so I, I'm curious about the decision making process in different countries or in Europe. Is it, is it similar to the U.S. or is it here are things that are slightly different? So the thing is, uh, um, I would say that this is the buyer's journey is similar. So it works great. in uh, You know, it, it, people make the decision the same way. The only thing is that. Uh, well, from my understanding, in the U.S., when you're a VP or CRO, basically, you're just like a football team coach. If you have good results, you're going to get another year. If you have bad results, you're out. In Europe, it's harder to fire people because of the rules and laws for that. So there's less urgency to make, make sure things are moving. 
So it's very common to actually see things going moving really fast in the US or in Asia. But in India, there's a lot less urgency. And I think it's ingrained in the fact that uh, culturally we have so much uh, social protection that, you know, if we, for example, in Germany, you cannot fire someone for bad performance. That's not possible. There's three ways to fire people. It's like, if they made, they got like, uh, they make like scandalous thing or whatever. Right. If, they got, uh, uh, if you do like a social plan where you have to reduce. And the last one is, I don't remember exactly, but uh, if the person basically threatens the existence of your company, these are the three ways you can do that. And even with that, it's very hard to fire people. So if you once you pass your probation time, you can basically coast forever and people, you know, if you're in a big company, people won't actually fire you because, you know, they will just, as we say in French, remettre au placard, so put you in the, uh, in the, in the shelves and just you're, you're there and they will do nothing. So I think the decision-making process is, uh, there's a lot less urgency. And so that's why I think it's harder. You have to be more technical to make sure you create this urgency. And so how do you do that? How do you create that urgency? Um, with someone who, and, and let, let's be honest, there are probably some, there are probably a lot of people in their job who are willing to make decisions and take the risk and, you know, do those things. But when you do have that piece behind them that you're describing, how do you help drive that urgency for those people? So I think it's, it's um, it always comes down to uh, how good are you at making a proper discovery and quantifying the problem they have. So if you can put like a number of value in euro to the problem they have uh, and you can make them realize that, then you can drive urgency. I think it's, it's the same everywhere. But if you see that, for example, they will, um, you know, like they have this strategic initiative they, they need to take. And if they don't take it, they're going to potentially miss on 10 million revenue. Then you're going to get this urgency. So it's really always that's the thing it says, which is frustrating is like if you don't do a good discovery call, you kind of down the line, you're going to suffer from that, from the consequences of that. So I think it's really about um, having a really in-depth discovery. Um, as my mentor, my mentor is Skip Miller, I, you know him, he's always saying like quantified costs, quantified problems, quantified solutions. And this works really, really well in Europe. Yeah, I agree. It's called, you know, our, uh, we have a good friend uh, who says we should dollarize everything. I call it economic impact when I train it. Um, like what is the real impact of this? Not just like time that you're saving and efficiency and effectiveness, but what do I get done if I save that time? What other projects are getting done and what's that worth to the company? So you really paint this robust picture. Um, you know, I, I have another question for you. So there's a phrase in the U S called ROI return on investment. I hate that phrase because nobody ever believes the return. They only see the investment. They only see the cost side of it. Um, which I know Skip, uh, I do know Skip very well and super smart guy. I like him a lot. Um, I think he would agree with that. Is that phrase exist in, in Europe? Do, do you talk ROI or do you not talk ROI? Yeah, we talk about that all the time and and, uh, and, and people are always asking what's the ROI. And uh, I think, as, as you said, I think it's a, it's very overused uh, sentence. And often it's, the thing is, um, what I believe is it's mostly subjective, you know, what you get yeah. is very subjective, and even if you have an initiative and it's really clear, you can't really calculate the ROI. It's 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 impossible. So you see these kind of Gartner reports where you say three hundred percent, whatever thing. So I think it's it it really depends. But um, we use that a lot, but people are not really impressed by it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Um, what happened? I asked you about. So I know we had no agenda to really sort of go into this conversation, but 
it's rare that that I do get a chance to talk to someone with this background, and it's really refreshing because a lot of it is, hey, it's still the same thing: a good conversation. Make sure everybody's feeling honest, right? You're building trust along the way. But then there's these cultural pieces around it, like you know, job security that can slow the process down. So I, I love that you've shared this with us, and I think it's really important. What other things should I be asking about trying to break into a European market or sell into a European market? Okay, so you, you want to know what are the uh, the kind of uh, cultural factors you need to know about, sure. or yeah. whatever whatever you think we should know, you tell okay. us because we don't know. I don't know. Yeah. So, so what I would say is, is based on my experience working in different kind of geographics in Europe. Um, if you look at France, for example, what you need to also understand is the uh, cultural, like the, the political system and the, the kind of history of countries. In France, for example, um, we had kings until the revolution in seven, uh, 1789. And then we have a president uh, that has a very strong power. So French people will always say, say we, we hate having a monarchy and everything, but we need a strong leader. That's the thing in France. And you can see that um, in big companies very often where you're going to get like some kind of committees or whatever, but there's going to be one person who makes decisions no matter what the other people are thinking. So if you, that, that's very common in Spain, France, and Italy where people make very strong decisions and there's one person at the top who decides for everything. And so that's, that's very common and that, that mimics a lot of the political system in France. Then you have places like Norway, uh, Finland, all the kind of uh, Nordic spaces where people will actually make decisions in committees and they will have everyone around the table, including the intern, make, you know, having to say yes to move, to move there. So that's, that's the style you need to have. And then you have something you need to check in Benelux, so Belgique, Netherlands, and Luxembourg. These are great places to make business because they have a lot of money, but they are insanely hard to deal with. So the people from Belgium, for example, are great because they are extremely friendly. I went once uh, on site with a, a friend and we went, me with a colleague, we went to work, uh, work for two hours with a customer, the prospect at the time. And we went for lunch and then we had drinks for, for the whole afternoon. We were best buddies forever. The guy brought me to the airport and everything. He never signed anything, you know? And, oh. and a lot of people, he just do it, he does that with everyone. And this is very common in Belgium where people are super friendly, but they never show you the money. And in Netherlands, they are really not friendly, yeah. So let's so let's let's go back to eat. Let's 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 talk about a couple of those. So let's go back to the. I think you said it was France, where there's still always ultimately one decision maker, right? Yeah. You, you could still have the committee who weighs in on what to do. Um, I assume that ultimate decision maker are they part of the entire sales process or do they come along at the end? No, they. You know, you say this thing where you say um, authority access to authority. That's what you right. say. It's exactly that where. Uh, you never know who they are. And at the end, for me, it was a, it was a deal with Accor Hotel and the person who made decisions, I never know about, about her until the end. So how, do you, yeah, so how do I navigate that, right? So now I know that. We've shared this with a lot of people. Um, and it's very similar in the States, right? Similar process. But there's still a personality, cultural piece that's different, it seems like. How do I then navigate that team to support the purchase with this ultimate decision maker, right? Like what is that ultimate decision maker? Do you think what's going to drive them to make the decision based on what the team recommends? So good question. Um, I think, I think it's going to be um, 
often they, some will trust their teams and they will just say, okay, send me the, you know, they will have a budget. I think for me, based on my experience, what will make them make a decision is like, do we have remaining budget? Is it something that the team is believing in? And, you know, like that's something that I would say that that's the way you do that. But to help navigate there, what I would say is important is to find out really who's the real decision maker. And what I found is a great way to do that is to ask for confidential information. So whenever you ask for, uh, you ask people to do homework in the sales process and they say, okay, can you, what are your key initiatives for Q4 or Q3? And then people will say, oh, I can't tell you that you need to sign an NDA, blah, blah, blah. You know, you're talking to people who do not make decisions. But whenever someone is actually showing you everything, you know, you're talking to a decision maker and you know, you build some trust. So that's what I would do is always to make people work for you instead of you working for them. And uh, it's easier said than done, obviously, but having people do some homework and get them to yet yeah, work for you, I think is a great way to kind of like climb up and see, like understand and map what's the account and who has power and who has not. That's what I would say. Which again, also very similar in the US. Um, what in Europe, if you look, and again, let's say in this scenario, you've gone in, you've pitched, um, but the ultimate decision maker says no, right? Can you come back to them at some point? Not immediately, right? But could you come back to them in six months or a year? Or once that decision maker says no, they're never going to look at you again, do you think? No, I, I don't think you, you can't come back. I think it's important to actually come back every six months until, uh, you know, because it's a no for now. Uh, and there are many reasons why it can't, can't happen. Um, and often the thing is uh, at this level in France, people of, often change. So your decision maker can change in the organization. So what's gonna happen is uh, it's very, we have this thing in France where the CAC 40, which are all the 40 top uh, companies that are tra publicly traded, um, their bosses are very close and there's a lot of conflict of interest with governments and, uh, and all the, these things. So, you know, in these kind of companies, you, you, it's, it's very political. So you have a lot of things moving. And so you can come back obviously, but um, yeah, you, ha you, you have to understand that too. What does it mean to understand that? What does it mean when you say there's all these conflicts of interest? Again, so, I'm trying to give perspective to, to the American sellers into Europe. So, for example, in France, we have a, a lot of like publicly traded companies that are uh, owned partially by the French government. So, I mean, the French nation, like SNCF, the train uh, railway thing. And these companies are huge employers. They have huge amount of money. And uh, the money comes a lot from uh, actually people uh, who pay taxes. And so what you have to, you know, it's, it's, it's often like it's a very political topic, but what you will get is some laws will be made to actually promote or help these companies have a dominant position on the market. And so these are things you, you will have. So when you work with these kind of companies, you will often have like, let's say a tender or a request for a proposal. And there are scandals that have, that have uh, you know, like I, I'm, for me, a request for a proposal is, is always something I, I don't like answering because I know if I'm not the one making it, I'm going to be used as the, uh, the yep. third week, the fifth week. So yeah, that, that's the kind of thing you have to see is like, there's a lot of, uh, of uh, corruption that has also been in history with these kind of things. And that's also very common in France. Well, let, let's shift to a different group, right? Like, so you would, you'd also mentioned there were two other groups in terms of how they make decisions. One was was this sort of, you know, not quite an oligarch, but that's kind of what it feels like, right? Uh, which is the popular word these days. Um, but then you have these decisions where it's committee driven all the way to the intern, right? 
how do you help navigate that decision-making process? And do you see it in your perspective that, you know, let's say there's seven people, you know, if four out of three, if four out of seven like it, will they purchase or does it need to be seven out of seven? Like you really got to get everybody on board. Yeah, so so I'll take the example of uh, if you're selling, let's say, a technical solution to a CTO, which is, I think, one of the toughest sales you can have, because often what's going to happen is you're going to have uh, the CTO, who's going to be your primary target, I call that, so the person who signs in the end, um, and then you're going to have, let's say, a head of mobile, if you're selling an SDK solution, who will be your champion, very enthusiastic with what you have to do, and then you're going to get like an influencer pool, which is an amount of people who will be involved in the decision or in working with that. And often it's developers. And when you go to a developer and you say, hey, let's put a new SDK in your app, the first reflex is no way. And they kind of like, I don't know why developers have so much power, but they can veto everything. So if the CTO and the head of mobile are really excited about that, if a developer says no, they won't be able to do it. So what you actually need to do is to understand what drives motivation for all of these people. So if we take the CTO, primary target, we talk about, uh, what goals they will have. There's going to be making sure they maybe reduce risk around technical debt, these kind of things, or uh, maybe safeguard their budgets. So there's going to be one thing you have to understand. Then the head of mobile, what I found is very often the head of mobile wants to become a CTO. So it's often going to be something around power. And so again, it's understanding that. And then the developers is like reducing the risk. Like will the app, you know, if I put this SDK, uh, completely be messed up or is there like some some good like uh, um, how you call that protocols around building this SDK and implementing it in this app so I think it's really about understanding you know how to talk to all these people and again I'll come back to a, to a skip a, a skip kind of a, a metaphor on that is that you have to speak different language you have to speak Russian with Russian Spanish with Spanish and Greek with Greeks and so that's really uh, understanding what, what you know what are the motivations of these people and making sure you address that uh, during the sales process. It's awesome because again, like it's it's the same thing here, right? We should be doing the same thing. Like it's 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 almost like it's more it's better defined and refined as opposed to sometimes how we sort of go in aggressively. Um, but it's the same thing. So it's it's super interesting. You were, there was a third group. You said there was sort of this you know top down approach. There was this. Um, you know, everybody makes a decision, you know, the collaborative decision. You said there was a third way that people make decisions. I can't remember which one it was. So I was talking about France, which is like top down, then the community in, ben uh, in the Nordics. And then I was talking about Benelux. Um, so th this, I, I just, the thing is, I've not been very successful selling in Benelux. So I can't tell you like the symptoms of what happened, but I've never really been like good at closing anything there. Or I closed a bunch of things, but I had like no clue how it happened. What I've noticed is that um, often, you know, especially in Netherlands, um, I love, I, I don't know, a lot of French people don't like people from Netherlands. For me, I personally love them. I don't know why. Um, but often what I found is culturally Netherlands, and my explanation would be that it's a small country that is under the water. The only way for them to be able to kind of like grow and, 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 and thrive was to uh, do kind of trade with people, buy stuff cheap and sell it for a lot of money. And so they are really good at bargaining. So whenever you, you talk, they are very aggressive. And, and I found that it's, it's really like you go into emotional situations very easily. And then you're like, it's like, why, why is this person like angry at me? And it's just like, that's the way they make business. They do business. So I don't know really so much about the decision-making power, but uh, I know like the way, the way it feels when you sell to Netherlands, it's just like, it's very stressful.
That's awesome. Thank you for sharing all that stuff. This is this has been super, super fascinating. Um, and we're, we're at the end. Um, I got one more question for you. But again, a quick shout out to you, our sponsors of Vidyard, Lead 411, Find Them, Perception, Predict, and Gong. But what can we do to help you, Tebow? How do we how do we help you? So the way you can help me, uh, for me, if you help me, is because you uh, help me help sales reps actually sell more. So yeah. one thing, you know, I can talk about is uh, I have a sequence like, which is called the ultimate LinkedIn outreach sequence, which is like a, a 10 page PDF where I show people how to build a call outreach sequence in five steps on LinkedIn. And so that's the way you can help me is just let me share basically the URL, which yeah. is like. How do, so should people just hit you up on LinkedIn? Um, they can hit me up on LinkedIn, but the best is if they go to saleslabs.io. So it's S-A-L-E-S-L-A-B-S.io slash U-L-O-S. If they do that, they will see the sequence and then they will get a ton of like value and be able to say it, say it again a little bit slower because particularly for me who has a hard time with accents, um, say it again a little slower. S-A-L-E-S-L-A-B-S.io slash U-L-O-S. U-L-O-S. Got it. All right. If they just go to saleslabs.io, can they find it? Yes. This is one right. of the first things. Great. Thank you. So, Tebow, man, it's great to catch up with you. Thank you so much. I appreciate, you know, you working with us as we rescheduled a couple of times. But um, we're so glad to talk to you. And, and thanks for sharing this insight because I don't think I've ever seen or read it in or listened to it in such a concise manner. So, I think it's helpful to certainly was for me, but I hope it's helpful for, for the people who are listening. Thanks a lot. And I mean, one last word is basically humans are humans and they, they make decisions, you know, if they're American, French, or they, they kind of like all make decisions in the, you know, in the same way there's cultural changes, but you know, you're sending to humans. So if you're human, you should figure it out. Basically. That's awesome, man. Thanks, Thibaut. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Richard.